America, we just started intense political search for presidential candidate. In the lieu of all primary election fever and political dreaming, let me ask all of us a question. What does America need more than anything? What would restore socioeconomic justice and peace in our country? What would end the futile political fuse and really ease the increased racial tensions and financial divide and even gender distrust? Listen to me, more than any political leadership and financial booms, what we need most in our country is a revival and spiritual awakening. True social economic justice takes place when there is spiritual repentance and return to God. If you study history of a Christian revival movement, you will find that subsequent restoration of a social economic peace and even prosperity. Loving God always leads to loving neighbors. For instance, when John and Charles Wesley led a great Methodist revival or Wesleyan revival in England in mid-18th century, British Parliament abolished slavery later under the heroic leadership of William Wilberforce. How many of you have seen the movie called The Amazing Grace? It's still a great movie, so if you haven't heard about it, check it out. It's a really great movie. Well done. William Wilberforce was a convert and the follower of John Wesley. And 50 years before America, Great Britain abolished slavery, a lucrative international commodity business back then, with a biblical conviction over economic incentive. That was the time when gospel beat the greed or mammon. Historians say that the Wesleyan revival saved England from a bloody revolution like a French Revolution, since both England and France were going through Industrial Revolution at the same time. And if you remember, Industrial Revolution brought a lot of farmers into the city, so horrible urban Urbanization or ghetto uh, came out. French has to, France has to suffer bloody revolution without God, but England had a peaceful resolution and social progress thanks to gospel and revival. So there's a book called How 18th Century Revival Saved England. So who says the religion or Christianity is opium for mass? While some religious revival might lead to dangerous holy war direction and the violence, you have to know the war, holy war in the evangelical tradition takes the moral social transformation. James Edwin Orr was a British Baptist minister and a very unique uh, historian, actually a good one, expert of a church revival and renewal. His book, 19th Century Revivals in England, tells some interesting changes that Welsh revival brought in 1904. When the rough miners in Wales repented and converted, their 
daily language was so radically changed, even their horses and donkeys could not understand the tamed language of their masters, who used to command them with a lot of cursing. The local police station had a different crisis. The crime went down so much that police had no work. And eventually, they organized a police choir to sing at the churches in their precinct. That was a Welsh revival. It's almost comical. Such a great revival is possible not only in the past, but also in the present. America needs, and actually, we have an overdue spiritual revival and awakening. So I want to say, those who ever talking about Trump or anti-Trump, whatever, what makes America great, again, is the gospel. Amen? Today I want to share with you the greatest revival in the Bible from Nehemiah 3. The spiritual awakening and repentance in Nineveh was totally unexpected and unprecedented that I call it the greatest revival, as you will see soon. And here we see three factors that create the revival. And I pray that we have these three factors in our life. So let's turn to Book of Jonah, chapter 3, and we're going to read a responsibly verse 1 to 10. Ready? We're going to read our brothers and sisters. So brothers, we go first. Here we go, one, two, three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, from the sackcloth. This is a proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of a king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, a herd or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not be perished. When God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring them on the destruction he has threatened. First and the foremost factor of a revival is the grace of God. Yes, everything starts with the grace of God. God's God of grace, we find here, is a God who gives us second chance. Second chance. Look at the verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. If you have a Bible, underline the second time. This is my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because God I find in the Bible in my life is a God of second chances. God gives a second chance to misbehaving prophet like Jonah who did not seek God, while even pagan sailors and the captains prayed in Jonah chapter 2. You know, amazing fact about today's story is that God did not even rebuke Jonah at all, simply called him back to be his prophet. 
This God of second chance is our God. The scripture, the Bible is a replete with a God of a second chances. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God did not judge them immediately, but visited them and humbly asked them, where are you? In Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham left the promised land because of famine and didn't trust God for uh, provision and went to, went to Egypt and lied about Sarah to Pharaoh, God came, rebuked, not lying Abraham, but the Pharaoh, and saved Abraham and called him back to promised land. One of my favorite stories about the second chances in the Bible is the story of Samson. As you know, when Samson pushed the limit of God's patience by womanizing and eventually fell in love with a Philistine prostitute and then told the secret of his power and lost not just his strength but also his sight and became a miserable prisoner of a war in the temple of Dagon, and so uh, uh, Samson finally prayed to God, the Lord restore my strength one more time. And God gave him strength for the second time and used him more mightily than before. What about the New Testament? In John chapter 21, our Lord Jesus followed Peter, the head of the apostles, all the way to Galilee to restore him as an apostle so that this inconsistent emotional Simon could become the Peter, the rock, literally means Petra, the rock of leadership and faith. All great men in the Bible are those who encountered God of second chances and experienced God's sweet grace of a second chance. Amen? Love is all about second chances. Love is all about second chances. Who is your best friend? How did he or she became your best friend? All good friendship relationship came from the second chances. We become good friends and stay as a family members through the grace of a second chances. What is a second chance? Second chance is when you give forgiveness and trust again to somebody who made a serious mistake to you. That is a second chance. This weekend, we celebrate Valentine's Day. What is a true love? Let me show you a picture of Jamie and me in 30 years from now. It's a back. You will see back of us. That's a Jamie and me. At current rate, I will shrink down. And we'll be shorter than Jamie. And Jamie will be about, more like a buffy man. You know, this is actually a well-known picture. Very popular picture in the uh, Instagram. And people make a different captions with the same picture. People say, old couple makes you believe that someone can love you forever. True love has a no expiration date. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> they are all saying the old couples are the cutest of all lovers. Why are the old couples are cuter than young, handsome couples? It's because true love has second chances. That's why old couples, their love looks so much younger and more refreshing than love of young people. So how do you celebrate the Valentine's Day? 
let me tell you, more than any beautiful flowers, sweet chocolate, and fancy jewelries, give your promise and commitment for second chances. Amen? So couples, turn to each other. And then those of you who don't have a, 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 a lover yet, turn to brothers and sisters, just to each other. Hey, I'm not kidding, turn to each other. Stephen and Andrea, you're not, you're, turn to each other. <laughs> Tell each other, thank you for giving me second chances. On three, one, two, three. Thank you for giving me second chances. And the other person will say, I promise you second chances. I promise you second chances. You know, in order to live an abundant life that God promised, we need to meet God of second chance and appreciate this grace of second chance. You know, many people regret missing the opportunities in the past. But real missed opportunity is a second chance God gives us today in our present. I don't know about you, but for me, forest is a God's second chance to me. I really do appreciate forest shepherds for our common bond in serving God through the second chances. Our shepherds, they give me second chance. I'm not, you know, those of you new to our church, I don't know what kind of uh, impression you have on me. I have a lot of flaws. Yeah, you will, you know, as you get to know me, you will see a lot of flaws. But our leaders, our shepherds, they give me second chances. Not because I deserve it, but I need them. And we need them. We need, we need to give each other second chance because without them, we cannot reflect the grace of God and glory of God in our life and we cannot serve Him. Amen? Let us be church of second chances. Amen? Let's not be stingy about the second chance. Let's be generous about giving others second chance. So first one is a grace. First factor of our revival is a grace. Second factor of a revival is obedience. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days Nineveh will be overthrown. So Jonah finally went to Nineveh. According to the storyteller, city of Nineveh is a large for it takes three days to go through it. You know, actually, that's an exaggeration. According to archaeological discovery, the remains of old Nineveh, it's, not the, it's actually the perimeter of the city is seven and a half miles. Seven and a half miles. So diameter go through it, it's probably shorter than that. But Jonah's but storyteller, the main point is that trying to give a contrast about the, uh, Jonah's ministry. The first thing the storyteller tells about the Jonah is that Jonah here was a picture as uh, carrying out his assignment without much enthusiasm. Without much enthusiasm. He only begins to go into the city and he went part way. He went only, he worked only one day. His preaching in Nineveh does not reflect any creativity, imagination, or enthusiasm. Actually, in English word was a word, right? But in Hebrew word, his preaching is only five words. 
In the Hebrew, you haven't heard the Hebrew yet, so let me hear, let me say it in the original Hebrew. Od Arabaim Yom Ve Nineve Nepaket. Five words. Over 40 days, Nebe will be thrown. Will be thrown is one word. His preaching to Ninevite is less than five, I mean, it's about five words. English A word. Less than ten words. That's all he preached. The word overthrow means a total destruction and almost annihilation. It came from Genesis 19 when God destroyed the Sodom and Gomorrah. The Genesis 19 the word overthrow comes three times. So a commentator says this, if Jonah's preaching is successful, that success will not surely not be credited to the homiletical or rhetorical skills of a prophet. Jonah didn't put his heart in his preaching. He just said, in 40 days, you'll be destroyed. That's all he said. It's like a, today's, uh, this Jonah's preaching, it's like today somebody goes to short-term mission and they only say that without Jesus, you will go to hell. Jonah didn't mention anything positive about God. You know, Jewish people know about God is a compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding mercy. He skipped all those things. It's once again, it's like a, some of us, by the way, let me ask you this question. How many of you know four spiritual laws? Have you heard about the four spiritual People who Know the four spiritual laws. Raise your hand. I just want to have a, a measure the temperature of uh, our congregation's evangelical tradition. How many of you know four spiritual? Raise your hand. Okay, Krista. All right, only Krista and Vivian. Rest of you don't know. Sam, you don't know four spiritual laws. You heard about it, right? At least you recognize it. Okay, four. This is a how far we came from. All good old, you know, days of evangelical Christians. Yes, evangelical Christians today will not be recognized by evangelical Christians in olden days. When this is why our political life is so messed. Anyway, uh, let me not go in there. Point is, in about even just, a, you know, two decades ago, you know, I remember when I was a young Christian, I used everybody carried a small booklet called the Four Spiritual Laws in the wallet. And, wallet, and then it, when you open it, it said, God loves you, has a wonderful plan. Law, spiritual law number one. Number two, but you are separated from God because of a sin. Number three, Jesus provides a way back to God through his death on the cross. Number four, you have to receive Jesus personally to have a personal relationship with God. Jonah skipped the first law and went to directly, you are separate from God and you will go to hell. That's what he's saying today. And the second thing, the storyteller is showing us in Jonah's ministry, surprisingly, God can use even such a lukewarm obedience. Look what Jonah's half-hearted preaching brought to the city of Nineveh. It was remarkably successful. People's response was overwhelming, out of proportion. But before we jump to the success of Jonah's preaching, which is our last point, let us pause and recognize one thing very important here. That is, do you believe in God's judgment and punishment? Let me ask you again. Do you believe 
God's punishment, judgment and punishment. Do you believe in hell? Many Christians, including some evangelical Christians today, feel very uncomfortable about the idea of God judges and punishes sinners. That sounds like an old, pre-modern, ancient religion where God seems to be angry, capricious, and violent at will. You know, most liberal churches don't talk about God's judgment. They talk only about God's love. Do you know about the liberal churches? They're dying. Liberal denominations are dying. You know why? Because they basically domesticated or tamed the holiness of God, the utter difference of God. And they confuse and conflate the radical radicality of God's grace with a, human, with a worldly progressive social agenda. So they totally domesticate the gospel and the uniqueness of the gospel. And that's why they're not growing, because there's not much difference in the liberal church and the liberal social you know, groups. Whereas conservatives, some of you find them uh, very offensive or dumb conservatives who preaches annoyingly about the heaven and hell, you know, they are growing. They're still growing, sadly, at a very, very like a pace with a populational growth. But I want to ask you, do you believe in God's judgment and punishment? I want to tell you, I do. And I hope you do. And I want to tell you today two reasons why. One is, the first one is a philosophical, more logical one. And the other one is a more biblical. And then let me illustrate the logical one with a well-known philosopher named Immanuel Kant. Who is Immanuel Kant? He was a so-called the father of enlightenment. He's a German idealistic or sometimes rational, you know, a philosopher of rationalism. You know, Immanuel Kant, in his book, Critic of a Pure Reason, and I'm about to give you one minute of a gist of that incredibly difficult book, so hear me, hear very clear. On that book, he basically said this. For humans, talk about existence of God is nonsense because the human mind is a finite. And finite mind cannot, it's not structured to talk about infinite object. So this is what Kant said. He didn't say whether God exists or he didn't exist. He didn't say that. He simply said, we cannot talk about existence of God. It's a, our mind is not able to talk about it. It's a mute point. It's like a little insects talk about the, you know, human beings or politics. Do you get it? So a lot of people misunderstand Kant as a, you know, atheist. He's not atheist, by the way. He's more like an agnostic. He's actually father of agnosticism. And uh, Kant is a, uh, you know, Kant is a known for daily routine. He does everything at the same time so exactly that uh, there's a stories of, you know, about him that whenever Kant passed by, farmers knew what time of the day was before the you know clock you know watch was popular, and the Kant was uh, he was professor at university and then back then all the university professors they attended a chapel, and when all the professors are going to chapel, you know Kant is always at the end and then go and then when they enter the chapel he turned and then he go to his office. 
So people assume that he's not a you know, believer. Yeah, he's not a traditional Christian, but he is a theist. He believes in God on two grounds. He believes God's judgment and also radical evil. You know, Kant said, human beings, he undoubtedly there is a radical evil. Because we do bad things irrationally. We violate the good things, no good reason. That's what Kant said. So Kant, in his another book called uh, Religion Within the Boundary of a Mere Reason, he made a statement of morality eventually or inevitably leads to religion. By that he means this, you cannot have an ethical ideals or ethical life without God. God is a necessity for a person to live morally, ethically. What do you mean by that is this? You know, I'm sorry, I don't want to be too much of a philosophical lesson here, but just, just, just pay attention here briefly. Kant, you know, such a rationalist, he believed everybody should live by their, you know, common rules for the healthy society. So he created this notion of a category of a, a moral imperatives. Moral imperatives is something that you need to you know, uh, you need to behave absolutely. You have to keep it absolutely to live as a healthy or safe society. For instance, it's a do not lie. Because everybody lies, how can they be good society, right? So here's a famous you know, extreme story is that when somebody rushed into this uh, room and then asked us that, oh, someone is behind me trying to kill me with an axe, hide, you know, Please hide me. And then he hide behind that you know, organ. And then soon, another person came with an axe and said, Have you seen someone who, who just came in? According to Kant, what do you have to do? So-called Kantian deontological ethic or ethics of a duty, he said, you're supposed to leave. He's behind that organ. You, can, you shouldn't lie. Because once you lie, who knows? What everybody lies, no society can sustain. That's what Kant says. But Kant said, people lie, nevertheless. That's a reality. So he's not just an idealist, he's a realist. And then he said this, a lot of evil people escape the judgment in their life. Don't you agree? I agree. Look at the Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, all the dictators, the father of Assad, the dictator in, you know, first dictator in Syria. A lot of bad people die naturally without receiving their due judgment or punishment. What about those people? On their account, Kant said, we need to believe God's judgment. Without God's judgment, this life alone doesn't guarantee ethical life or provide a foundation for moral life. Okay, let me finish the philosophical argument here. So Kant believed there has to be judgment of God without which we cannot be ethical and moral. Now, Houstonians, are you proud of uh, Houston Astro for winning the, uh, championship, the World Series championship? Let me tell you, I'm a, a Dodgers fan. I'm upset with the uh, you know, Astros for their cheating. 
Yeah, everybody cheats, but the way they cheat is beyond and above the you know, usual degree. Yeah. I mean, MLB, Major League Baseball, they drop the ball, really. You know, I, I don't know. Who knows what, happened, what will happen? This, they have to really revamp the whole rule. Why are we upset with the Houston Astros cheating? If you're upset with the Houston Astros, you're not proud of Houston Astros, it's because you believe in judgment. Yeah. Let me tell you. If there's no judgment of God, why in the world do I live uh, this life that I live now? If not judgment of God, I won't be a pastor. Come on. Are you, do you think I'm that dumb? I'm not going to be a pastor. If I become a pastor, I'll not be a, this kind of congregation pastor. I'll be tele-evangelist. I'll start my ministry. I'll start saying that I sense whatever. You know, I have a special oil. That oil that God, you know, showed me after my 40 days pranks. You know what? what? I really, really want judgment of God. I want God to tell all of us who have been really faithful at the end and who are not. I want God to tell us who is a real, who is a fake. Otherwise, my life doesn't count and your life doesn't count and life we try to build here doesn't count. I believe in judgment of God, and I hope you do. Because the Bible says very clearly, one day each one of us will stand before God and then give account of our life. And the Hebrew 9.27 says very clearly, it is destined for man to die once and to face the judgment. So believe me, the Bible tells about judgment. And then again, the ultimate reason I believe judgment of God is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. If there is no judgment of God, why in the world the Son of God died on the cross? Because crucified God, crucified Christ, suffered my punishment on the cross, I believe in judgment of God. Otherwise, everything Christ did was a charade. So do you believe in judgment of God? Let me hear it. Do you believe in judgment of God? Okay. Sounds stronger than before. I hope you don't change next week. Guess what? People of Nineveh, they also did. That's the last factor of a revival. That is a response. Response to God's grace. Here, we find the people for the second chances. Verse 5 said it very clearly. Nineveh believed God. A fast was proclaimed, all of them, from the greatest to the least, Put on the sackcloth. When Jonah war Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robe, and covered himself with a sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is a proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herd or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. I think, by the way, this is where the Muslim got the idea of uh, uh, Ramadan because during the Ramadan, they not only abstain from food, but also from drink. You know that, right? They don't even drink during the day. But let people and animals be covered with the sackcloth and let everyone call urgently on God. Let them, give, uh, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. I guess they know their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with a compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. You know, Nineveh, one day, they heard 
blunt prophecy out of this uh, funny-looking, weird-smelling uh, 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 Jewish prophet in the beach. And lo and behold, they really believed it. And Jonah's preaching was successful. And the reaction of the people was amazing. They believed in God, called for the fast, dressed in clothes. Uh, but that clothes means uh, clothes for mourning, mourning, funeral clothes. And also, it was a grassroots movement. It started with the common people and then eventually got to the royal palace. Another important you know, spiritual observation we make is that anyone can start a revival. Anyone can start a revival. Your social status doesn't matter when it comes to God's work. Whoever sincerely cry out to God, God will use that person's cry to start God's work. The sincerity of a common people's repentance moved their king's heart. Again, packing order doesn't work. The social, worldly packing order doesn't work in the kingdom of God. Whoever was infected with the holiness of God will spread the holy germs around. And the king's behavior is exemplary. He humbles himself by divesting himself of his symbols of authority, his throne, and his robe. And then he prunes the sackcloth, sitting on as sitting in ashes instead of throne. And he calls for all inclusive fast, extending even to animals and animals, and then, then calls all of them to turn from their evil ways and violent ways. And then King realized conducting a fast does not guarantee that God will forgive them. So what did he say at the end of everything? Who knows? Who knows? Do you, are you challenged by this repentance? Even with a partial understanding of God's truth, they repent. I think this Nineveh's response is the actual intent of the storyteller of the book of Jonah to rebuke the believers or Israelites because we know so much about God, yet we do not obey or respond to God like these pagans. Just like the sailors in the ship to Tarshish, Nebite here portrayed as exemplary believers or responders to God's grace. A commentator said this, People of God may be amazed by behavior of the people of the world, the insiders are surprised by outsiders. The insider means us. Outsider means non-believers. Hearing only a few words from the prophet, these outsiders have repented and cleaned up violence in their city. The insiders had been listening to the words of a prophet for centuries. And the record of their response to those words was not a happy one. The attitude and response of a Ninevite has been long remembered. Guess who used them as an example to challenge us? Jesus. If you look at the Matthew 12, 41, Jesus said this, the man of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment or judgment day with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, at the preaching of a half a hearted 
unreal, I mean reluctant preacher, they repented. But now something or someone greater than Jonah is here. Isn't it a story of us? We hear God's message. We hear God's message not from prophet, but the Son of God himself, God himself. Yet we always take people for granted. You know, response and the Ninevite, when they said, when the king said, who knows? This is exactly how we're supposed to take a second, uh, treat the second chance. They received the second chance as if it's the last chance. Without second chance, there's no more tomorrow. It was urgent to them. Do you take God's grace as a last chance? God's, God's grace is the without grace of God, there's no tomorrow. Do you desperately hold on to grace? Because without grace, our life it can, is, is, is meaningless. From the response of Nineveh people and king, let me bring a final uh, uh, lesson, important lesson for all of us when it comes to sharing gospel. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. From the story of Jonah's half-hearted preaching and the Ninevites' wholehearted repentance, one thing we know, one thing we learn is this, you never know who will respond to your sharing of God's love. Or preaching. You don't know. Paul used this uh, uh, language of farming in and out of season. When it comes to spiritual harvesting, you don't know when someone will respond. You just to share. But surprisingly, when you don't expect, sometimes they respond. And you will be surprised. Just like Jonah was surprised. So keep inviting your VIP to house church. The one day they respond can be can 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 start a you know totally new history in their life. Your pastor Paul Kim is an example of the Nevite because I was so resistant to the gospel. You know, one time in South Korea when I was young, we lived in the building, kind of a middle class a penthouse. There was a five-story building. Uh, first two stories was uh, some commercial thing, and then, and then, uh, 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 third one there was a church. Fourth one was a, a office, and then we lived on the top of that building. Penthouse. I mean, just you know, in a very, very uh, loose sense. I mean, you know, primitive sense. And occasionally, that uh, church on the third floor, they have a revival meeting. And when it's a revival meeting, they sing loud, long, and usually happen in the evening. You know, that's a fourth floor people and business people, they are gone in the evening. But we're still up there, and the sound come up. You know, guess what our family did? We went to the church in the middle of their worship and banging the door and they, keep it down! I bet church people pray for us. <laughs> and then, shamelessly, whenever 
Actually, they invited me and my sister to their Christmas. Because, and then I went there because why? They gave a free notebook and pencils. So I received all those you know, children's gifts they, they gave during the Christmas. Yet, I never believed myself that I would be one of them. If those people can see me today, they will say, I believe in God now. <laughs> you never know who will respond to the gospel. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends. Because everything about spiritual work starts with a prayer. And we talk about forest and the house church, but you know what? Every, bottom line is a praying. Seriously, my ministry, when it comes to bottom, is that do I kneel before God or not? When I don't kneel before God, I just worry. Believe me, I have a lot of, you know, ministry is very stressful. You know, full-time ministry is incredibly agonizing and humbling. You know, I understand the tenure, average tenure of a pastor is just a short, short, you know, few years. I understand. But without that one thing is clear. You cannot do any kind of ministry, full-time, part-time, whatever, lay as a pastor, professional, it doesn't matter. Ministry means praying. Ministry is a never solo act. We are working with our God of a second chance. That's where the prayer matters. James Edwin, Edwin Wynn, let me close my sermon with this quote. In his book, he said this, We don't have to convince an unwilling God to come and refresh us with his presence. He is for it. But he cannot be manipulated. But when sincere heart, who knows they cannot do his work, nor his will without him, and humbly pray, he will answer. A lot of great things in happen in our church is a God's gracious answer to our prayer. Whatever is stressing you out, God is calling you to pray. But especially, don't just pray for your need. Pray for the lost people around you. And God will answer your prayer. Amen? Let's pray.